Hi, this is John Arhan, and welcome to another episode of LaserCast, the program devoted to everything LaserDisc. In this episode, we're going to take a look at LaserDisc audio. Audio was one of the big selling points of the LaserDisc format very early on. The idea of having this stereo soundtrack to go along with this video content on the disc. There was something that DiscoVision really pushed, and a lot of their early titles were musicals, were television programs and other kinds of musical programs featuring people like ABBA, Loretta Lynn, a bunch of a bunch of really diverse performers. It was all focused on selling this machine as something which could reproduce very high quality audio content. And also, it was trying to market partially toward the hi-fi audience, because in the 70s, the the high-end hi-fi people, the, the people who would spend thousands and thousands of dollars on record players, on turntables, on tape players, on amps, this was a known quantity. These were people with deep pockets who were into bleeding-edge equipment, and along with the general audience, I mean, Disco Vision was also trying to market to the growing home video market, the idea of being able to buy your favorite movies on a tape or a disc, in the case of uh, Laserdisc uh, and CED. They were also trying to get the, the, the early adopter, the hi-fi audio money. And the early Lasers players, the industrial design of the early Lasers players they're all modeled after like record players. The first Magnavox lasers player, you sat the disc down and you had a lid which came over the top of it. And instead of a needle reading the disc, of course, it was a laser. So we're going to go ahead and discuss all of the different eras, the evolution of Laserdisc audio from the early analog days into the 80s where we had digital CD quality audio and Dolby ProLogic, multi-channel, and then into the 90s where you had the evolution into multi-channel digital sound, which is kind of prompted by the, the digital theater sound wars, the Dolby digital and DTS wars. So we're going to cover it all here. started off silent, of course, with silent films. And the early talkies had very early, very archaic systems of syncing the audio to the picture. One of these early systems was Vitaphone, a system that had shellac discs, actually a, a record which played along with your film. That evolved into systems of actually combining the soundtrack, the sound, into a film strip. 
if you look at a, at, a, at, a, at a film soundtrack, little squiggly lines, that's read by an optical reader and then decoded as a mono track, as a mono soundtrack. And for many years, mono sound was how most people heard their their films, was how most theaters... Now, starting, you know, way, going way back, stereo and multiple channels of sound, that, that's actually very old technology. It goes back into the 40s and 50s, experimental. In the 50s and 60s, there was this growth of large large format films and 70 millimeter and magnetic sound as, as soon as uh, audio tape had been developed this method of stripping of putting magnetic strips on films began to develop and so magnetic strips magnetic strips on the side of of the film strip began a way to actually have multiple channels of audio in a movie theater but it was still 70 millimeter. Most people saw films on 35 millimeter and they had a, a, just a, just a mono track until, until the seventies when a company, Dolby Labs, developed a way to put stereo sound on a standard 35 millimeter film strip using their advanced signal processing noise reduction technology. They created Dolby Surround. In the late 70s, you had a lot of really pioneering filmmakers who were pushing film soundtracks to their limit. People like George Lucas and Lucasfilm and Star Wars films and Apocalypse Now with Francis Ford Coppola. These were big, bold statements, and they were pushing the state of the film soundtrack forward. And of course, in the late 70s, along that same time, we had, we had Laserdisc being introduced. I, I want to take a step back and, and talk about Laserdisc because Laserdisc, it needs to be said yet again, Laserdisc is not a digital format. The Laserdisc audio is not inherently digital. You could think of lasers as almost kind of an optical laser red record of an analog FM signal. A laser disc is a reflective disc. A laser reads the pits and lands on the disc and reconstructs an FM waveform, an FM signal that has components, parts in that signal. There's a, a video component, standard definition, analog video component. And then there are other subcarriers. There are audio subcarriers. So initially, Laserdisc had analog video and analog audio in this FM signal, combined in this FM signal on the disc. And early, early Laserdisc audio was, it had the, the, it had the, the audio quality of, of FM stereo, like you'd hear in a radio station. But it was hissy, the dynamic range was limited. And very, very early on, this was uh, seen as a problem. This is a known, this is a known issue and a known problem. So very early on in the Laserdisc format, the need for noise reduction came into play. In the 
In the 70s, there were multiple companies developing and marketing their own noise reduction technologies. And a lot of these technologies were geared toward the home hi-fi market, cassette tapes, reel-to-reel tapes, records, Dolby. Dolby was a big player in the market. They had their Dolby noise reduction, which is very quickly becoming a standard in the market. You also had these smaller companies, mainly geared toward records, increasing the fidelity of records. Again, geared toward a hi-fi audio market. You had a company called DBX, which had a special type of noise reduction for records. And you also had CBS, a big company which developed this type of noise reduction technology called CX, CX noise reduction. DBX, DBX noise reduction was apparently just incredible. The Techmoan video channel on YouTube has some great videos devoted to both DBX and CX kind of explaining those formats in depth and giving you a lot of information on the history of those formats. The, the, the problem with DBX though is if you play a DBX record on a non DBX uh, record player or without the decoder, the special magic decoder ring, it sounds quite bad. CX was kind of different because the CX technology was designed to actually be played back on a, just a conventional, conventional record player, conventional amp that did not have the magic decoder ring. It was supposed to preserve the fidelity, but then when you had a CX decoder, connected, oh boy, you, your, the fidelity would jump up and, and wildly increase. Both CX and DBX, they were two-part technologies. They had an encoder where you'd take the, the audio material and you would do some magic and you'd encode it in this special format. Then you would take it home and you'd have a decoder, you'd have the hardware, it would uh, reduce the, the, the noise and unfold the dynamic range and give you, hopefully, a much better sounding track of audio. So DBX kind of fell by the wayside, but CX began to be employed by Laserdisc on the analog audio tracks as a form of noise reduction. And many, many discs were actually reissued with CX sound, and it became a standard. It became a part of the Lasers format from the early 80s on. If you bought a, a Lasers player, it had CX noise reduction built in just as a standard feature. And the Laserdisc began to be designed with this flag that would just, if a, if a, an analog track was encoded, in CX, it would just automatically turn the CX encoding on in the player. Early, early players, early players with CX actually had a button where you could turn CX on and off. And then even in the early 90s, I bought a realistic Lasers player which had a CX button that you could turn it on or off. But there were some players where even that once CX was engaged, you could not turn it off. Once the, the player saw the CX flag, it would just turn it on and, and lock it on. Because you usually, I mean, if a disc is CX encoded, you don't really want to listen to it without the CX encoding. The only reason for really manually turning off CX is if you have a disc 
where they they did a boo boo and they should not have encoded the disc with CX. So the way CX works, it it works its magic across the two stereo channels. It requires a stereo channel with the the same the same information across the two channels. With Laserdisc, you have the the possibility of having your analog channels be two separate things. You can have like an isolated score on one track and a commentary track on the other one. And CX would not work with with a disc like that. A disc with different audio in the analog tracks. So what would happen? What the what you'd hear with that is, and you'd hear, and there are were some di- lasers that they did, did, did this. Um, you can search on LDDB.com. I think there were some Roan laser discs. I think there were some other laser discs which had. It was it was in the nineties because main that that was mainly when they started the the commentary tracks and isolated scores on laser discs. It was in the the later the later years of the format, but. Yeah, there were there were some 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 discs which were for some reason encoded in CX. Somebody at the uh, the 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 mastering plant uh, didn't get the didn't get the message. What what CX would cause is it would cause this weird pumping sound where the audio would go up and down. It, it was this weird pumping sound if it was if CX was applied to analog tracks with dissimilar content on either track so in those cases then yeah it would be nice to have a player that yeah you could automatically switch the cx off and listen to things with a normal the normal analog fidelity and cx would only work with analog tracks there there's no there's no reason to encode cx on digital c Digital does not require any kind of inherent uh, noise reduction, whereas the analog tracks did. Another benefit, apparently, with CX is that it also helped the helped increase the dynamic range and fidelity, and it also helped to to separate part of the the analog audio track from the video track and so it was also helping as far as the being able to master the the video properly and not have the audio part of the subcarrier interfere with the video part of the subcarrier so there were also some technical practical format reasons for introducing this CX noise reduction as a standard and it was So CX noise reduction kind of put a band-aid on Laserdisc's sound quality, but the first big innovation in Laserdisc audio was the introduction of digital sound, actual digital audio tracks, which would run along with the video and the analog sound. And that came 
kind of toward the early mid 80s around that time frame and it was billed as cd quality sound because at that point people hi-fi people average people understood the compact disc compact disc had been introduced in the early 80s and so now the laser's format had digital sound to go along with it and it was billed as cd quality sound but it actually had a, a slightly lower sample rate than 44.11 kilohertz CD audio is like 4400 something with decimal point uh, laserdisc digital PCM pulse code modulation PCM uncompressed and not uh, not all laserdisc had this this audio some some laserdisc some movies were re-released with digital audio others just kept rocking the analog sound with the CX noise reduction People still to this day stand by the the quality of Laserdisc audio. I don't know if it's nostalgia or interest in an older sound mix of a film. Now, because when we talk about preference, audio preferences, oh, I like Dolby Digital, I like DTS, I like CD, I like tape. One thing that a, a lot of people don't think about and one of the factors that they don't consider is the fact that Yes, the formats have a different sound. Tape is going to sound different from CD and so forth. But before you hear the audio, there's a mixer. And the mixer is mixing, especially for Dolby Digital, Dolby Digital on Laserdisc, especially for Dolby Digital on, on DVD, on Blu-ray. So there's not just one mix of a film and that, that sound mix is put on every format and everything is, is equal. No, it's not. Things are sweetened. Things are tweaked. Things are lower or hotter. And so if you have a preference for digital Laserdisc audio, that might be a preference for just a, an older type of, of audio mix, you know? Some of the early audio mixes in the in the year in the lasers years some of them were geared towards 70 millimeters some of them were ported from 70 millimeter directly to laser disc and, and and tweaked of course to be able to fit uh in a, a PCM stereo framework but to this day people some sometimes swear by the laser disc PCM stereo digital tracks on these lasers of the 80s and 90s with the Introduction of digital sound, of the PCM digital tracks on Laserdisc, you also see the introduction of surround sound. And toward the late 80s, this was becoming a, a big hot thing in VHS, hi-fi, stereo, and in Laserdisc. But Laserdisc was the, the prime format for this Dolby Stereo or Dolby ProLogic, Dolby Surround. It goes under the name theatrically Dolby SR. Dolby's technology goes under a lot of different names and there's lots of different revisions of that technology throughout the 70s and and the 80s and beyond. So I don't want to make any mistakes. I probably probably will. But really, with, with Dolby Surround, we we have we kind of have to start back in the 70s and what they were able to do in 35 millimeter with a 35 millimeter track 
the films, the film track, the film area that they were able to split into two stereo pairs. Not only were they able to split that into two stereo pairs, but very early on, Dolby developed a technology which was able to take a stereo audio signal and from that stereo audio signal extract basically four audio tracks. Four audio tracks from stereo. And that that really is essentially Dolby Surround, which kind of began uh, as Dolby Surround, Dolby SR, Dolby Pro Logic was the home technology, Dolby Pro Logic 2. You know, and each revision had different different uh, different uh, add-ons and improved sound quality. But essentially, what Dolby Surround is about is is a left and a right channel, a stereo track. And in inside of that stereo track, you have a center channel. The center channel is actually the combination of the left and right track. And then you have a rear channel. The rear channel is the left and right track, the opposite. It's the the phase of the of the audio track. If if it's flipped, then you reveal the the rear, and so you have now you have the possibility as opposed to the first early surround sound in theaters were magnetic magnetic strip. As I said, that that allowed you to get multiple channels of audio in a theater, and the multiple channels of audio in a theater initially it was all about being able to to have enough speakers to cover your and a big you know roadshow 70 millimeter a big theater that would show a big 70 millimeter film and people paying big ticket prices for that to be able to kind of have the sound kind of spread out across it it was it was called big boom the way that they they were able to they had these boom channels that it was just about really kind of spreading the sound out Dolby's technology was all more of kind of like really directionality. You could have, you know, your audio kind of locked to the to the center channel so people could hear the dialogue in the in the dialogue track in the center channel really easily. And then you could have effects. And of course, because of the advent in special effects, special visual effects, a certain part of the, the visual is the sound, is is creating the world of Star Wars, is you have to have the world kind of sound like Star Wars. And all of that incredible Ben Burt sound effects and sound design, you want to be able to portray that. You want to be able to play that back. And so by the the 80s, this, this theater soundtrack format, this technology that Dolby introduced, was kind of spilling over into the home and into Laserdisc. And so now, you could have that digital Laserdisc stereo track, but if you had an amp that had a Dolby decoder, it could unfold the Dolby surround and you could be surrounded in sound. Now, now Dolby surround is not perfect. Dolby Surround is what's called a matrixed format, which means that channel that the the four audio tracks are combined into the stereo track. And so they're not they don't have the full power 
of the the one stereo track, all of these tracks, because you're splitting the signal across all of these tracks. And so they don't all have the dynamic range. And of course, Dolby, as the technology developed, they, they tried to develop ways of being able to directionalize the sound across these channels. Because again, also, if you play a Dolby, Dolby surround track just in pure stereo, the idea of the format as well was that it was compatible with stereo equipment. If you play a Dolby surround track in stereo, it, it doesn't cut off. You don't, it's not like you don't hear anything. You hear the center channel, and then you hear this weird out-of-phase kind of weirdo rear channel and of course, you also hear the stereo tracks, but you all hear it together in a, in a stereo track. When you play that through a Dolby sur- surround decoder, it then it, it's the magic decoder ring. It splits everything off into the individual channels, but it's still you still hear kind of ghosts of the different channels in these different channels because they're not they're not split up. They're all combined. They're matrixed. You're using audio technology and audio masking kind of magic voodoo to get the all of these four tracks in these two stereo tracks. You can kind of psychoacoustics and signal technology and, and flipping things in phase and out of phase. A side story to this is that Dolby was not the only matrixed surround sound technology in business in the 1980s. In fact, Dolby Dolby was expensive and they charged a licensing fee for you to use Dolby Surround on your movies. And there were a lot of companies that just d- didn't want to pay that fee. And so there were all of these other technologies like Chase Stereo and Ultra Stereo. Ultra Stereo was the most most famous. You'll see a lot of movies at the very end say ultra stereo, and you're like, what is that? Well, ultra stereo was a technology that was compatible with Dolby Pro Logic. It, it could encode the center channels and rear channels in a stereo signal, just like Dolby Pro Logic. Because Dolby Pro Logic, it's really a kind of a simple technology. You can actually, with stereo cables, you can throw things out of phase, create something called a Haffler circuit. And you can actually listen to Dolby ProLogic or Ultra Stereo or any kind of Matrix surround track without even any kind of special amp. With just a stereo amp, you can wire your speakers up into this kind of special configuration called a Haffler circuit that can do it. But the magic of Dolby, Dolby ProLogic, and Ultra Stereo is the kind of the processing of the whole thing. So Ultra Stereo was, again, a, a Dolby ProLogic compatible technology, and but it was cheaper, and I think you could actually buy Ultra Stereo rigs, or they, were, they wouldn't charge a, a royalty fee, a licensing fee to use their technology. And Ultra Stereo actually, in some ways, was, was, was better. The, 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 the way to be able to move audio across all the channels from the steering technology because the guys behind Ultra Stereo were kind of, they, they developed it. It was introduced in 84, but their technology and their patents and their, their, their R&D goes, goes back to the 70s, goes back to Quad, goes back to Quad Records. So they brought this into, into multi-channel uh, matrixed audio. And, and it, was a very, it was a very successful system. And I think eventually they... I, I, 
this is hearsay. I think they did collaborate with Dolby at some point on some of the, the later ProLogic technology. So Ultra Stereo was a very well-regarded, well-thought-of alternative to the, the, big, the big boys, to, to Dolby. So no matter whether it's Chase or Ultra Stereo or the big boy, Dolby, you're still starting with a stereo track and you're splitting that into four tracks. And you can't get something from nothing. With, with matrixed audio formats, you're always going to deal with being able to separate the channels, with the channel separation, with a kind of a, a muddy, what we call a sound stage, with you know being able to put a sound in a specific area of the theater, of the directionality. And the overall energy of the tracks, the fidelity of those tracks, because it's all being squeezed into two tracks, it's going to be compromised. So what if you had, what if you had a technology which was completely discrete, where you could have six channels or more of digital sound, just like stereo is two channels. Imagine six channels of discrete digital sound where the six channels all have the full bandwidth. The, 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 you're not splitting signals. You're not doing any kind of voodoo to combine anything. The six channels operate independently of each other. That was the dream of digital sound, Lucasfilm, everybody making those Star Wars movies, everybody making those Indiana Jones movies, Spielberg, the Star Trek films, you know, all of the big hit movies of the 80s, everybody wanted digital sound, and it was coming. It was coming. Whether they, whether everybody wanted it or not, everybody wanted it. They did. They didn't not want it. They wanted it. <laughs> and toward the late 80s and the early 90s, the digital surround wars would begin. So the the digital theater sound wars began to heat up in the early 90s. Of course, there were experimental systems of playing a digital soundtrack along with a film picture for many years before that. I mean, as early as the, the adoption of the compact disc and digital audio, there was the idea of, like, can you combine this with a picture? But some of the first practical exhibitions, the actual paying public being able to, to see a film with a digital soundtrack, well, that came around 1990 with Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy had some 70 millimeter engagements. 
And by the way, 70 millimeter kind of had a resurgence in the early 80s because of the magnetic soundtrack. You could put a very high fidelity magnetic soundtrack uh, on a uh, 70 millimeter. So in the late 70s and early 80s, you'll find that a lot of films like like Alien and Ghostbusters and off the top of my head days of heaven a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of films which were shot actually in 35 millimeter were blown up and exhibited in 70 millimeter because you could have that high quality soundtrack well dick tracy had a 70 millimeter engagement in 1990 and it had a new type of technology called cds cinema digital system it was a technology that was developed by kodak and Cinema Digital System replaced the entire area of the, the optical soundtrack, the area of the film strip, which would usually house the analog optical audio tracks. It replaced that with a, with a, an area where you, it had encoded a 16-bit digital soundtrack, multi-channel soundtrack. And apparently it was just mind-blowing because it was CD quality. It was multi-channel. The problem was that this system was not compatible with regular projectors, which could only read, uh, could only read the original, you know, analog tracks. You know, film, very compatible format for decades and decades and decades. If you had a, a projector, you could read that mono audio track. But CDS broke compatibility with that totally. And it was like a $20,000 system, you know, and it was, you had one movie. So it never really caught on. Also, going all digital with no kind of analog optical fallback, the problem with that is if there was a problem with a digital track, the projector and audio system could not, was called, fall back to to the old analog optical. You hear that in movies, uh, not really today because everything's digital, but throughout the 90s, if you saw a movie on Dolby Digital or DTS, there might be moments where there was some damage to the to the film. Film is can be very easily damaged by just touching it or through going through the projector. You know, things can get mangled or mar- gnarled up. That's the, 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 the name of the game with, with 35 millimeter. So these early digital systems, 35 millimeter digital systems, could fall back, and you you would hear in the in the theater you'd hear like this change in fidelity where you'd have this digital soundtrack, it was boom boom, and it would usually kind of get a little quieter and muddier when you'd hear you would you would you could actually uh, get your own impromptu demo of uh, of. Uh, digital soundtrack versus analog Dolby surround. It would, it would just, it would be just like a, you could think of it as a value added feature, a little demo of uh, analog versus digital sound in theater projection. But CDS did not have that. It did not have any kind of fallback. So it was not that popular. Dolby, Dolby, the big innovator coming, coming up from the back with their own SRD, Basically, Dolby Digital, as it has become known, their only their own Dolby Digital technology. Dolby Digital was compatible with the old optical soundtracks. Dolby Digital did not wipe out your optical soundtrack. You could still have your optical soundtrack encoded with Dolby Surround. Dolby Digital encoded itself in what looked like little, like weird 
dirty kind of like it was like white and black speckly little strips between the sprocket holes of a film strip so you could be playing the dolby digital between those sprocket holes if there was a problem with that track if it got damaged you could fall back to the analog the first film released with dolby digital sound was Batman Returns in 1992 in a handful of theaters and like 10 theaters that had the new special Dolby processors which could decode that new digital soundtrack. Now in the public's eyes, the visibility of digital theater sound formats jumped up exponentially with Jurassic Park in 1993. And that's when most people kind of realize, oh, oh, now we got a new thing. When we go to see a movie, is it in digital sound? Steven Spielberg released Jurassic Park in DTS. Spielberg had been enraptured by the technology and was, in fact, an investor and a partner in the whole DTS company. DTS as the name Digital Theater Systems implies, was another multi-channel digital technology, just like AC3 and CDS. Like AC3, DTS kept the optical stereo soundtrack. And DTS actually, it's, it's kind of lesser known, but they developed a, a, a encoding called DTS Stereo. It was kind of like ultra stereo. It was compatible with Dolby decoders, Dolby surround decoders, but that was what was on the tracks of a, of a DTS film print. That was the, the analog soundtrack. DTS stereo was not really a technical thing. It was more of a licensing thing. It was a way to get out of paying the Dolby licensing fees, the Dolby tax uh, for a film print, so you could have the DTS digital sound, and then you could fall back to the DTS stereo sound. It was compatible with Dolby surround decoders, but you could have a, a film print which was completely Dolby free. Unlike... AC3, where the digital soundtrack was between the sprocket holes of the print, with DTS, what was on the film print was time code. And the actual DTS sound was housed on CD-ROMs in a separate player, which would be hooked to your projector. So the projector would read the time code, it would sync to the to the DTS audio on the CDs and the CD-ROMs and would then play the digital sound. And then you'd get the digital sound in the theater. Now, there was another digital soundtrack format that was from Sony. It was called SDDS. And it was actually on the side of the, the film. It was actually like, like AC3. It was actually physically encoded on the sides of the film strip. DTS came out in 1993 on Jurassic Park. A lot of promotion, a lot of publicity because Jurassic Park was a huge film. And SDDS premiered on Last Action Hero, which was not the, <laughs> not the best, not the best film release to, um, introduce your major technology, uh, on because, of course, Jurassic Park was the big hit, DTS was the cause celeb, and 
Last Action Hero was something else. Though SDDS survived, and I guess still survives in 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 many ways. You know, there's this this technology evolved. So, but really, it emerged in the early '90s that the big players were DTS and AC3 because of the backers, because of Steven Spielberg and Universal, big backers of DTS, and then Dolby, which is a gigantic company, the backers of the Dolby Digital Technology, also known as AC3. In the home, it, it the, the AC3 branding began to kind of come come into play. So, speaking of home, Dolby Digital and DTS would be very soon in in the early to mid 90s coming to home theater video files everywhere and what was the best delivery medium well the only delivery medium for these audio formats of course laserdisc Digital, again also known as AC3, and DTS came to Laserdisc in the late 90s. In 1995, Dolby Digital kicked it off with Clear and Present Danger, the first Laserdisc to feature Dolby Digital sound. And then in 1996, there was a, a bunch of Universal titles which were released on Laserdisc with DTS, including, of course, Jurassic Park. Casper, Apollo 13, The Shadow, all of the launch titles, the DTS launch titles, were associated with Universal. So DTS and Dolby Digital were two separate technologies, basically both doing the same thing. They were able to get 5.1 channels, six channels of digital sound onto this big old Laserdisc format. And the Laserdisc format, of course, going back into the 70s and 80s, it was not designed to to contain multi-channel digital sound. So Dolby Digital and DTS had to do some things in order to get those sounds onto that disc. First of all, DTS and Dolby Digital, they're compressed audio formats. And they're compressed digital formats, kind of like MP3, MP3 or MP4 AAC, you know, like from iTunes and the iTunes store and so forth. So MP3 and MP4, AC3 and DTS, a lot of, uh, a lot of acronyms here, but people have a preference. You know, there's some people are, oh my God, Dolby Digital. 
other people, oh my God, DTS. DTS from the very, very beginning set itself up as a kind of a premium experience, you know, the best quality sound. They, they kind of had, you know, hi-fi fidelity kind of aura surrounding DTS. At DTS was a higher bit rate than, than AC3. DTS required, uh, like, like a thousand kilobytes a second, whereas AC3 on Laserdisc was at 384 kilobytes per second. And, and, and immediately the audiophile people were like, see, see, it has, it has more, more information. It has more. It's more. It's better. It's bigger. It's better. On Laserdisc, DTS required both of the digital stereo tracks, the left and right. So that was completely taken over by DTS. And it required a Laserdisc player that had a digital out. You had to have a digital output that you could plug in to a DTS receiver that could decode that DTS digital stream into the 5.1 channels of sound. AC3 Dolby Digital was a little bit different. It was a little more compatible. Again, Dolby playing it kind of a, a, a little more compatible, uh, a little more mainstream, a little more kind of middle of the road with their system. Their system was stuck onto the right analog channel. So the digital stereo channels were still there. You could still have ProLogic sound. You could have digital stereo sound. Nothing was this, nothing, nothing was changed. But on one of the right channels, and if you went to that channel, you would hear like, it just be, it would just be like hiss. It'd be static. That was the Dolby digital signal. Because Dolby Digital was encoded on the right audio track, it wasn't like DTS. You couldn't just spit it out of the digital output of the Lasers player. What, what, what happened is there developed these Lasers players that had an AC3 RF output. So you'd have an RF output, you connected that, and then you had an, a Dolby Digital AC3 RF demodulator which would then spit out a digital signal, and then you'd plug that into the digital input of your amp. So it was kind of, it. you had to kind of a, a multi-step in order to get the RF analog signal to decode the digital from that and then go to your amp. But anyway, you split it with both DTS and AC3, you needed a player that had an AC3 RF. You needed a player that you needed a demodulator. You needed a player with digital output for DTS. You needed all of this specialized stuff, which for the video file, for the home theater file, no big deal. The early adopters get new hardware, get all new players, and buy these specialized discs. Again, rebuy your movie in DTS or AC3. Wow. <laughs> we want your money. We need your money. Now you have a new way of spending your money on remastered versions with digital soundtracks. So DTS was a little more specialized. 
it was a little more seen as a little more the high end, the high fi version of these formats because Dolby Digital, Dolby Digital could be put onto the right analog channel of any standard release of any standard major movie laserdisc release. You still had those digital stereo tracks, which were compatible with all of the current Laserdisc players in the early 90s, which could play digital audio. Completely compatible. You just had a little right channel that had some static on it. And when you put it into the right machine, that static would be magically converted into six channels of digital audio. DTS was a little bit different. DTS was specialized. DTS took over the digital stereo tracks. So if you bought a DTS disc and you did not have a DTS compatible player and AV receiver amp decoder, the best that you could hope for was analog audio. So DTS was really specialized. DTS had the DTS did their own mastering, their own pressing, everything. And very frequently you would have a, a release, a regular standard release, which might even have Dolby Digital on it, but then DTS would go off and make their own version of the of the film in these specialized and limited pressing run versions. Because DTS was limited. You, you would barely really see a DTS disc in stores. And you really don't even now secondhand because the people who bought those DTS discs, those DTS laser discs, they kept a hold of them. They were they were the elite. They saw themselves as the elite audiophile, videophile, theaterphile people. So, and they believed in the quality of of DTS and that it was demonstrably blue standard d- stereo and AC3 just blew them away. So DTS discs would very, very clearly at the top, it had this black banner with the DTS logo at the top. So you knew, hey, this is a DTS disc. This is something special and, you know, something special and different. As I said, DTS would do all of their own encoding. And sometimes, sometimes they would reject a, a, a title, you know, uh, The Wall. The Wall was a title that was supposed to come out on DTS Laserdisc, but they rejected it because apparently of problems with the Audio Master. So that title was canceled. Or maybe it was problems with the title. Who who knows what what really happened? This is the late this is the late nineties. You know, D, you know, uh, Laserdisc is kind of grinding to a halt. So titles are being announced and canceled. Things are moving around. It's it's very much in flux, but in but introduced into this flux are these new digital uh, technologies, new digital audio formats. Now, of course, this is 96, 97. Within a couple of years, we would then have a digital video format, a digital video disc. And with digital video disc, unlike LaserDisc, digital video disc would have digital audio as a standard, and as a standard, it would have Dolby Digital. DTS, DTS became a DVD standard, but it was a, it was about a, a year or a year or so on into the format. And not all players could decode the DTS format streams and everything, but Dolby Digital was from the very beginning 
digital part of the format. With the introduction of DVD, that's really where the story of Laserdisc digital audio really comes to an end. It was really a brief era of Laserdisc audio. It was really only a few years where these discs were were coming out, you know, in the very late 90s and the early 2000s. The last really truly interesting thing that came out as far as Laserdisc audio was Dolby Digital EX. Dolby Digital Surround EX was uh, the next evolution in Dolby Digital and Dolby Surround technology, which was 6.1 channels. It was a rear, ch- it was an extra rear channel in the back. It was a rear center channel, basically. So you had left, right, center, and then left surround, right surround, and a center surround, as well as the the uh, point one, the the subwoofer channel, and that that soundtrack format was actually featured on the Phantom Menace. It was featured theatrically in Phantom Menace. That was the the premiere of that technology. And the Japanese laserdisc of the Phantom Menace was also encoded in Dolby Digital Surround EX. So that's that's really the end. Digital theater sound technologies and digital home theater sound technologies have continued to evolve throughout the 2000s. Really, the evolutions have been more in the era of lossless compression because DTS and AC3 of the of the 90s were lossy. DTS was kind of weird because it was part of the technology was about kind of a hybrid lossy and lossless technology. AC3 was completely lossy. But in the early 2000s, there began to be developed these lossless technologies, which are basically the, there's no, there's no monkey business. There's no kind of psychoacoustics. There's no stuff like MP3 to try to squish all of the sound information into a tinier amount of space, into a tinier amount of kilobytes. Now we can use uncompressed and, uh, you know, the, the idea of it is to get higher quality sound, to get higher, truer quality sound, uncompressed, all of that stuff. So, Uncompressed audio, more channels, and to the point where we get now with Dolby Atmos, which is just channels basically everywhere, speakers above your head, speakers all over the place, and going from mixing sound more less channel-oriented than more object-oriented, creating this gigantic sound field where we can just place these objects, these sound objects, these individual sounds anywhere in your house. A lot of incredible stuff, but it all started with uh, with Lonely Old Laserdisc and those two analog stereo tracks. And in some ways, I mean, like many, many people, I'm still sometimes in love with the standard Laserdisc digital soundtracks, the, the digital stereo audio tracks, because I think some of them, they, they were just, there were, there were some standout incredible tracks that uh, I still love listening to from time to time. So in any case, I, I thank you for listening to uh, another one of my uh, programs focused on the, the technology of Laserdisc. When you deal in the audio world, the audiophile world, there's so many he said, she said, there's so many opinions. 
And there's so many advanced technologies and different names and different acronyms that, uh, you know, you're bound to kind of mix things up from time to time. But uh, I hope I've given you a nice overview of just the general history of LaserDisc Audio. I hope you've gotten something out of it and have a great day. Really care about audio. I like it so much. I got one for my friend George Sherry. <laughs>